afternoon. Welcome to Covenant Hope Church. I'll extend my welcome uh, as well as you getting Michael's welcome at the very beginning of the service. Um, so glad that you're here, especially if you've not been before, if maybe this is your first time, maybe first or second time to come to Covenant Hope. I hope that you will maybe stick around afterwards and let us get to know you, have a conversation with you. We really enjoy meeting the people that come and visit us. My name is Brian Parks. I'm the senior pastor here at Covenant Hope, and I love to go see movies at the IMAX theater. I love to go to the IMAX theater because when you go to the IMAX, it's like you're in the movie, right? It's the screen basically fills up almost your entire range of vision. And even if, especially if it's an action movie or it's some kind of movie with incredible scenery, um, it's like you're there. But there's something that's better than an IMAX theater, and that is being there. Like, for instance, I remember when we flew home from being in Dubai, flew home for the summer one time back to the United States. This was in the mid-2000s, and we stopped. As a family, we stopped in Switzerland. I'd never been to Switzerland before. And we went up on some of the Swiss mountains. It's amazing, absolutely amazing. It makes, it makes the IMAX theater, it's like watching, that makes the IMAX theater like watching a movie on your phone. It's just absolutely thrilling. It takes your breath away, literally, to stand on one of those mountains, to see the sky, to see the mountains far, far beyond. Creation, God's creation, is amazing. And in our psalm this afternoon, Psalm 36, David, King David, is thinking about how to describe God's steadfast love, how to write a song about it. What should he compare it to? And the most amazing thing he can think of is creation. And that's what he does. We'll see it in Psalm 36 this afternoon. If you have your Bibles with you, turn with me to Psalm 36. We're going to be studying this psalm this afternoon. Psalm 36. Follow along with me as I read. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes, for he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. He plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast, you save, O Lord. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house. And you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light? Oh, continue your steadfast love to those who know you, and let your righteousness and your righteousness to the upright of heart. Let not the foot of arrogance come upon me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. There the evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down 
unable to rise. Let's pray before we study God's word together. Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of every one of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, you're our rock and you're our redeemer. And it's in the precious name of your son, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. Well, the main idea that David is communicating to us through Psalm 36 is this. Sin blinds the wicked, but God's boundless love saves and protects. Sin blinds the wicked, but God's boundless love saves and protects. If you're taking notes and you want to write down the outline ahead of time that might help you follow along, I have three points this afternoon. The first is blinding sin. Blinding sin. The second is boundless love. Boundless love. And the third is bold prayer. Blinding sin, boundless love, and bold prayer. Well, Psalm 36 is placed near the end of the first group of psalms that there are called books. There are five books of the psalms. They cover and include all the psalms from Psalm 1 all the way to Psalm 150. But the first book runs from Psalm 1 to Psalm 41. So Psalm 36 is close to the end of that book. And if you look down in your Bible, you'll see that it has a heading. Now the heading is actually probably not the first little brief sentence that you see there. The heading is the thing that says to the choir master of David, the servant of the Lord. Now I just want to remind you that many of your Bibles give each psalm a title. It's a, a topical title that they give to it. And so if you're reading the English Standard Version, which is the version of the Bible that we preach from here at Covenant Hope, Uh, you might see the title listed there as How Precious is Your Steadfast Love. You should know that that is a title or a theme that's put there by the Bible publisher. But what's under it, what's written to the choir master, that's that's part of God's inspired word. That heading was there when the book of Psalms was all put together. And so we should take that seriously. We should consider it. To the choir master, it starts out. That reminds us that the psalms are really songs, S-O-N-G-S, songs. They're meant to be sung, not just studied and read. And so the book of Psalms was actually the song book of Israel. They would sing these songs. Of course, they sang them in the language of the original Israelites in Hebrew. We are reading it in English. It doesn't rhyme. So it's hard to make it into a song. But many people, many churches actually sing, some of them, only the psalms. Only the psalms. And that's something that we should try at some point in time at Covenant Hope Church, I think, is singing an actual psalm. Beyond that, the heading reminds us that this is a psalm that's written by David. It's of David. And, of course, David was the most famous king of Israel. He was chosen by the Lord. He was anointed king by God about 1,000 years before Jesus was born and lived. 
You can read about the accounts of David's life in the Old Testament in 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel. 1 and 2 Samuel. I know that's not very intuitive, is it? Read about David in 1 and 2 Samuel. But that's where it is. It's in 1 and 2 Samuel. And you know what? I would really encourage that you do that, that you read through 1 and 2 Samuel this summer while we are going through the Psalms. Because when we come upon the Psalms, which are predominantly written by David, it would help you greatly to understand about David's life because often in his Psalms, he's reflecting on experiences that he had. And we see that in the Psalms. Sometimes even specific experiences we read about. Sometimes it's even mentioned in the title, the heading of the Psalm, what was happening in David's life at the time. Now that last part of the heading tells us that David is the servant of the Lord. Now that's telling us that David, even though he was a powerful king, he considered himself a servant of God. He himself was a servant. He lived to please God, to obey God, to carry out God's commands and God's purposes in the world, even though he was a king. You know, if you are a Christian, you also are a servant of the Lord. And you should understand that your life's purpose is to serve God's purposes in the world. God's purposes should be your purposes. David was a servant of God, but he begins this psalm with a meditation on those who do not serve God, actually. The wicked. The wicked have given themselves over to blinding sin. We see that in verses 1 through 4. Blinding sin, that's the first point in the sermon this afternoon. Right away, when we start reading at verse 1, we encounter a tricky verse, a difficult verse. It might not look difficult to you, but believe me, the translators had trouble translating this verse. And you might know if you laid out three or four or five good English translations of the Bible, you'll see that many of them translate it somewhat differently. Well, even though it's been translated somewhat differently in different places, the ESV Bible thinks that it best is captured by this. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. Of course, this verse is teaching us that sin begins in a person's heart. Sin isn't just disobeying a rule. It's not just wrong actions committed by a person who has an otherwise good heart. Sin is not a habit problem. Sin is a heart problem. Now, David's describing a person's sinful nature as if sin itself were a person, a person who had a voice, and as if that person, sin personified, is whispering to the person. It's like he's, he's speaking to him. It's persuading him. It's, he's rationalizing to him. And for the wicked, listening to the voice of sin demonstrates that they have no fear of God. They're not listening to God. They're listening to their sinful hearts. Now, the rest of verse 1 tells us that they don't have any reverence for God. That's what fear of God is, a reverence for him, a respect for him, an understanding that he's king and we are the created ones meant to be his servants, just like David. Being deceived by our sin in our hearts 
is where sin always begins. But it doesn't stop there. These verses teach us that it actually takes root and it continues. Because we learn then that the wicked learn to deceive themselves with flattery, with compliment. They compliment themselves, essentially. Look at verse 2 with me. For he, the wicked, flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. David's saying that the wicked are not honest with themselves. They think that their sin can't be discovered. They think highly of themselves. They say to themselves things like, I'm not really that bad. (laughs) Or they might say to themselves, think of all the other good that I'm doing. It far outweighs this little problem area of my life. Or they might say, if I keep it hidden, you know, what other people don't know about won't hurt them. But unchecked sin in the wicked always multiplies. It always multiplies. It never just goes away. It's like a snowball rolling down a snowy hill. It keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Well, we see that it keeps getting bigger. It keeps affecting the sinner. We read in verse 3, at the very first part of 3, he says, the words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. So you see, it started in his heart, and now it's moved to his mouth, actually, and it affects the things that he's saying. And then we see in the second part of verse 3, it guides his actions. David says, he has ceased to act wisely and do good. And then it's not enough to spontaneously sin, The voice of transgression speaking in the sinner's heart suggests making plans to sin. Look at verse 4. He plots trouble while on his bed. What should have been a place of rest becomes a workshop of wickedness. And the end of verse 4 seems to describe how completely sin takes over a person. The last two lines of verse 4, he sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. The wicked is set in his ways. He's firmly fixed on a path of sinful living. Did you notice how sin works its way from the inside of a person and eventually affects the external life of a person? Verse 1, of course, it started in his heart. It worked its way up to affect his speech and then his actions And then not just his actions in a part of the day, his actions in both day and night. It infects all of his life. There was a famous pastor from England named John Bunyan. He wrote a famous book that you've probably heard of called Pilgrim's Progress. But he also, he wrote a lot of other things too. He wrote a book called Grace abounding to the chief of sinners. And this was his account of how he became a Christian. And he starts by describing how wicked of a man he was. He goes into great, great lengths to describe his wickedness. At the time, even before he was a Christian, he was exposed to Christian teaching. He attended church regularly, but he continued in his sin. And he describes a time in this book when he was in the midst of committing sin, and he sensed God put a question in his heart to his soul. This was the question. Will you leave your sins and go to heaven, or will you keep your sins and go to hell? 
That was the question. He was struck by it. He was convicted by it. And it frightened him. But he thought at the time that he was too much of a sinner to experience the grace and forgiveness of God. Too much of a sinner. He thought he had already committed too much sin. And so he decided that if that was true, then the only pleasure that he would ever have in life was in sinning. And so he writes this. He said, I found within me a great desire to take my fill of sin, still studying what sin was yet to be committed, that I might taste the sweetness of it. And I made as much haste as I could to fill my belly with its delicacies for fear that I would die before I'd had my desires filled. What a strange response to conviction to plunge headlong into sin, ever more sin. He actually says he studied what sin had yet to be committed so he could experience it, taste its pleasures. It's a vivid picture of someone who, even though they're convicted about sin, perhaps even hearing the voice of God in their, in their souls, in their hearts, but they plunge ever further into it because they can't get enough of sin's pleasures. This and many other scriptures, our scripture here in chapter 36 of Psalms and so many other places in God's word teach us that before a person gives their life to Christ, they are totally given over to sin. Totally given over to sin. And this is where we get what we call the doctrine of total depravity. Total depravity, depraved meaning sinful, totally sinful. And what this doctrine teaches is that every part of a person is corrupted by sin. Every part of a person is corrupted by sin. Now don't misunderstand the term total depravity. Some people think about that and they think, well, I'm not an ax murderer. I've never killed anyone. But that's not what total depravity means. It doesn't mean that you and I were as wicked as we could be. It means the extent of wickedness touched every part of us. We were stained by sin throughout, tainted by sin. Our minds, our emotions, our actions, our words, everything was tainted by sin. Some worse than others, but everything tainted. The moment Adam and Eve took the fruit that God had forbidden and they ate it in Genesis chapter 3 of the Bible, they became thoroughly tainted with sin. And so has everyone who's a descendant of Adam and Eve, including you and me. Do you agree with what Scripture says about you? Do you agree with it? Do you understand it to be true that you and I were thoroughly tainted by sin and unable, we had no ability on our own power to turn to God and trust in Christ alone, to cry out for his mercy? Sin blinds us to God and to his holiness, to God and his mercy, listening to the lies of Satan and our sinful nature actually teaches us how to lie. Adam and Eve became the first pros at it. <laughs> and so we've learned from them as well. 
And so we flatter ourselves, we lie to ourselves about our own sinful condition, just like verse 3 tells us. Church, we must not lie to one another about anything. We must not lie, even if the truth is embarrassing to us. We should prefer to be embarrassed or even ashamed rather than to lie. Whenever you lie, you're imitating Satan. It's true. He's the father of lies, the scripture tells us. Brothers and sisters, our church community should be a truth-telling community. Don't tell lies to one another. Not big ones, not little ones. Tell the truth. We can... We can have the courage to tell the truth to one another about ourselves and about the sins perhaps that we're struggling with because of one thing. One thing that the wicked and the unrepentant don't know about or don't have any experience of. The boundless love of God. That's point number two this afternoon. The boundless love of God. And it covers verses five through nine. You see, in verses one through four, we see that while the wicked are focused on themselves... The righteous are focused on God and his character. In verses 5 through 7, David quickly turns to explore the boundless love of God, and he's describing to us that it has no limits. And so he has to compare it to the only thing that seems limitless that he knows, and that's creation. God's steadfast love, David tells us, extends to the heavens. David says, go outside, look up into the sky, and see if you can see where it ends. You can't. You can't see where it ends. It keeps going. Stand in an open field and spin around 360 degrees. There's sky, sky, sky everywhere. God's faithfulness, David says, reaches to the clouds. You know, most of us, have flown on planes before. If we live in the UAE, we almost all had to get here on a plane. If you've flown on a plane, you've taken off, and maybe you've had the privilege of sitting by the window, and as you look down, you see the city get smaller and smaller, and the buildings and the cars all get smaller and smaller, until finally, maybe the plane enters the clouds, and you can't see anything. And if you were fortunate... Maybe it was a sunny day, and eventually you broke out above the clouds in the plane, and you could look down on clouds, actually. God's faithfulness stretches higher than that. God's righteousness, David tells us, is like the mountains of God. Mountains, of course, represent those things in creation that are immovable, they're stable, And they too, like the sky, seem vast, enormous. Last weekend, Joanne and I drove to Oman. We got to see some mountains. They're small mountains in comparison to what you might see in Switzerland. But they're mountains nonetheless. They're pretty amazing. Sturdy, huge. God's righteousness is like the mountains of God. Not only that... But God's judgments are like the great deep. Some of the largest mountains on the planet, you might know, actually are underwater in the sea. 
Some of the largest mountains are there. That's how large the oceans are. That's how deep the sea is. You know, it seems like every week or so I'm reading on news sites of a new discovery in the oceans, either a new species that they've caught on camera or maybe a new and previously unknown phenomenon that scientists never had understood or known about before. That's how vast the oceans are. We know so little about them, actually. God's judgments are like the great deep. And David caps off these two verses, 5 and 6, with a declaration about what God's love does for us. Look at the second half of verse 6 with me. He says, man and beast you save, O Lord. Man and beast you save, O Lord. God's love is a saving love, a rescuing love. It's not a mere emotion. It's not that God's heart goes pitter-patter just when he thinks of you. No, it's a commitment to act and to save people and animals. I don't know if you noticed that. It's worth pausing just a moment to point out that God actually cares about animals. Whatever God creates, he cares for. When we treat animals with care, we're actually imitating God's care for them. God's covenant with Noah after the destroying flood of Genesis 6 through 9 was a covenant between God and mankind and animals. They're actually mentioned there. They're a part of the covenant. The law that God gave to Moses included commands about giving your farm animals rest on the Sabbath. God's love even extends to animals. In verse 7, then, David shifts from comparing God's boundless love to creation to considering how valuable God's love is for man. Why man? Because man is made in the image of God. Man is no beast. Man is created to be a king representing God, rulers under his rulership. And David tells us, first of all, that God's steadfast love is precious. It's so valuable. In the second half, he teaches us that the children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of God's wings. Of course, God doesn't actually have wings. God is spirit, the Bible teaches us. But here he's described with metaphorical language like perhaps a mother bird hovering over her chicks, protecting them. Or perhaps this is even a reference to the two carved cherubim that stood in the most holy place of the temple. They represented heavenly creatures created by God that serve God's purposes in the world. And those statues that were in the most holy place in the temple stood more than four and a half meters tall with wings that stretched to each side of the temple. You can imagine standing underneath them, imposing, but if you knew they were there for your good, protective. Next, David tells us that God's steadfast love is like a feast in God's house. It's a feast that never runs out of food. There's an incredible list in the book of 1 Kings that describes the banqueting table of King Solomon. King Solomon was the son of King David. 
And when King Solomon took the throne, he expanded the kingdom of Israel to its farthest reaches. And God gave King Solomon not only the wisdom that he asked for, but he gave him riches. The amount of food, the amount of of, of feasting that happened at Solomon's table every single day was absolutely amazing. You should go and read it, 1 Kings. Not only do we feast in God's house at his table, a table that never runs out of food, we're also told that God's people drink from the river of God's delights. Delights here is actually the word that is also the word for Eden, like the Garden of Eden. And we're told that his love is a fountain of life. Lastly, we're told it is light. His love is light. It's light that enables us to see everything else, including ourselves, clearly and accurately. This boundless and precious love of God came to David, and it can come to us if we are in a covenant relationship with God. You see, we don't have access to this love simply because we've been created by God. Of course, the wicked of verses 1 through 4, they even experience some of the love and grace of God in that they have life. God's given them breath. Whatever they have in their life, maybe, maybe clothing, maybe food, a livelihood, shelter over their head, all these things come from God. And theologians would call that common grace. That's common grace. It comes to every single person that's on the planet. But God's steadfast love is his covenant love. And that's meant only for those who trust in him, who become his servants, like David's described at the top of the psalm. Throughout history, you see, God has always had special terms and conditions for mankind to know him and to experience this boundless and intimate love that he offers. There were boundaries to his love. David lived under the laws given to Moses and to Israel, the Mosaic covenant, we call it. But we live in a different time. Same God. Same boundless love offered to sinners, but we enter into God's saving love, not by trusting God and obeying the laws of Moses, but by repenting of our sin and trusting in Jesus Christ. This is what we know to be the new covenant. The new covenant. Jesus announced this new covenant right before he died. Oh, friends, this is an amazing amazing covenant offered by God to anyone who would take it up. You see, all of us were like what verses 1 through 4 describe before we knew Christ. We were given over to our sin. We had no ability to turn to God, even though we might have recognized his existence in creation, through creation, maybe the love of our family we still were unable to turn to him truly repenting and putting faith in him. And there was nothing we could do to get ourselves out of that situation. But God, who is rich in mercy, he was the one who made a way for us. You see, God in his love sent his only son, Jesus Christ, the God-man, to come and live on the earth, to live a life of 
constant and unwavering faith in his father. He never sinned. Jesus then went to the cross willingly and was crucified, experiencing the punishment that sinners deserve, but that he didn't deserve. He died. He was buried. But then he rose from the grave to demonstrate that his payment for sin had been accepted by the Father. His payment on behalf of anyone who would hear the message of his life and his death and his resurrection and repent of their sin. That they would call out to God and surrender to God, saying, I've had enough of my sin. I will need your mercy, God. Anyone who does that, who puts their trust and faith in him, they are born again. And God takes out their old heart that's racked and shot through with transgressions, and he gives them a new heart. A new heart, and they're filled with the Spirit of God that then enables them, or us perhaps, if we repent and trust in him, to walk in his ways, to please him. This is the good news of the gospel. This is the good news that's offered to anyone, even all of you, if you would but repent and trust in Christ. This is the same love that David knew. He didn't know Jesus by name, but he knew the promises of God and he trusted in them. He was a man of faith. Friend, if you're not a Christian, if you've not turned from your sin and trusted in Christ, why wait? Why wait? Step outside and consider the sky, or the mountains, or the ocean. God's love is more sure, more fixed, more vast, more immense than these awesome features of the world that we live in. If you're not a Christian, you don't have to keep obeying the voice of your sinful nature. You know, what you're getting from your sin is like a cheap plastic toy that comes out of a gumball machine. <laughs> Compared to God's love that's been shown to us through Christ, which is like winning the lottery. Winning a prize with more zeros behind it than you can imagine. Think of that voice in John Bunyan's head. Would you rather leave your sin and gain all this love that David describes and have it forever more dwelling with God in heaven? Or would you keep your sin and all the ways that it cheats you and it lies to you? It destroys you and eventually will send you to hell. That's the choice we all have. Brothers and sisters in Christ, are you meditating on the love of God as a way to drown out the voice of transgression speaking in your heart? Of course, you and I know that the scriptures teach us that anyone who has repented and trusted in Christ has the Spirit of God within them. They have a new heart, and yet we still have the sinful nature. It's possible for us to not please God. You know that not only from the scripture, don't you? You know it from your life experience, if you're a Christian. Are you meditating on this immense and boundless love of God? Are you reminding one another about how great God's love is for us in Christ? Do you, do you have a word from Scripture that's, that's touched you recently that you should be sharing with the people around you who love God and need to be reminded? Those of us in the church, members of the church, that's how we're supposed to live with one another. 
What are your conversations with one another like? Do they discuss this boundless love of God shown to us in Christ? You know, maybe some of you are struggling to believe that God really has this much love for you. That it is this boundless, this immovable, this deep. Well, if you're having trouble remembering what a treasure you possess in the love of Jesus Christ, I want to encourage you to think about, think about one illustration. You know, I live about a block from the beach. Do you know how many times I remember that the ocean is just a block away from me? That I could walk out of my house and within 10 minutes be on the beach and admire God's creation? I forget about it all the time. I forget about it all the time. And yet, it's an enormous privilege to be there, to be able to see it and to think about God's love. I think that's oftentimes what happens for us and the boundless love of God in our lives. We lose touch with it. We forget that it's there. We're not reminding ourselves that it's there. It is there. The Arabian Gulf is just a block away from me, no matter whether I'm thinking about it or not. And we have to remind ourselves of the very same thing when we read God's Word. Even though we might not feel it in some way, it's true. The question is, do you believe it? Do you believe that God has boundless love for you in Christ? When you see a bright, cloudless sky, I want to encourage you to train yourself to remember that God's love is greater. It goes higher than that sky. When you stand at the beach and you can't see where the water ends and you can't even imagine how deep it goes, train yourself to think about how deep God's love is. When you see mountains or maybe, for those of us who live in Dubai, tall buildings, <laughs> maybe that has to suffice for us, think of God's immeasurably tall love for us. When you sit down at a delicious meal, give thanks for the unending feast that we have in Christ. When you gulp down a tall glass of water on a hot Dubai day, think of how God's love quenches your soul's deepest thirsts. Oh, brothers and sisters, train yourself to let creation and your life experiences remind you of the truths of our unseen God who is truly there and truly loves us. David's consideration of God's boundless love gives way to a bold prayer in verses 10 through 11. Bold prayer, that's the third point in the sermon this afternoon. He begins with a request. Continue your steadfast love to those who know you, he says in verse 10. Now, that's covenant language again, steadfast love. He says, those who have trusted in the promises of God and those promises that David knew but have now been fulfilled all in Christ Jesus. And then David goes on and he says, essentially, and continue your righteousness to the upright of heart. What is David asking for here? Well, for one thing, we know that entering into a covenant with God through faith isn't something that you do and then you go on with your life as if you got what you needed from God 
forgiveness of sin, and then you can go out and live your life however way you want to. In other words, your salvation, the love of God that you received is simply something that you received in the past at a particular point in time. Maybe you shed a tear, maybe you walked the aisle, maybe you prayed the prayer, and you got your sins forgiven, you think. No. David knows that a man or a woman in covenant with God needs the ongoing, continuing grace of God to sustain them. Brothers and sisters, we need grace every day from God. Every day. Yes, God will give it, but we also must keep asking for it. You know, we keep asking for it mainly so that we don't forget that we need it. But what does it mean that God continues his righteousness to his people? That's something that David prays for here. Continue your righteousness. You know, this, I think, hints at the fact that every Christian's righteousness is a righteousness that's been gifted to us. It's been given to us. It's not as if God did his part and now you have to do your part. In other words, God gives you a starter set of righteousness and now you need to create somehow your own righteousness on top of that. No, you actually never had any righteousness of your own and you never will have any righteousness of your own apart from Christ. We only had sin-stained hearts and sin-soaked lives, friends. But when a person trusts in Christ, he shares, he, Jesus, shares his perfect righteousness with us. The theological word for that is imputation. It's as if Jesus gives us check-writing privileges on his heavenly bank account filled with the riches of his grace. It becomes ours, too. And you can write checks on it. What's his becomes ours. Every Christian knows that the only reason they can please God is because of God's work in us. Are your prayers for grace or only for things that you need? Are your prayers for the ongoing, continuing righteousness of God or only for a change of your circumstances in life? Now listen, it's not wrong to pray for those things or for your circumstances. David does that and lots of psalms. But consider what consumes the majority of your prayers. What percentage of your prayer time do you ask for God's boundless love and faithfulness to continue to you, for you to know it better, to understand it, to grasp it, to believe it more deeply? If you see spiritual growth in your life, Areas of sin conquered or maybe new evidence of changed character in yourself? Are you proud of it? Or are you thankful to God for it? Are you patting yourself on the back? Or praying a humble prayer of thanks because you know that God gets all the credit? David goes on to boldly pray for a specific outcome in his circumstances. And verses 11 and 12, look with me there, verses 11 and 12. 
Let not the foot of arrogance come upon me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. There the evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down, unable to rise. David knew that not only were the wicked opposed to God, but they're also opposed to God's people. David experienced that in his life. And so he prays for their defeat and for his protection. Remember what we saw in verses 1 through 4 about how sin started in the heart and then it worked its way up to the eyes and came out of a person's mouth and ended up in their actions? Now we see the foot and the hand of the wicked attempting to defeat God's man here in these verses. David was God's anointed king and God sustained him until he died. But Jesus Christ is the son of David. He's the one whose throne will never pass away. He is King Jesus, and he's sitting on the throne right now. 2,000 years ago, they thought they had defeated him. They thought that they had their foot on his neck, so to speak. Indeed, he was dead. But on the third day, he rose. He defeated death, and now he lives forever at the right hand of God the Father. And Jesus will come again to judge. My friend, your greatest danger in life isn't the trouble that sin causes you. It's not the emptiness that sin leaves you with. It's not the web of lies and deceit that you might find yourself entangled in. The worst threat that sin poses to you is not a present danger. It's the destiny that sin is leading you to. Christ will come to judge all who have lived. For those who trusted in his boundless love and his righteousness in their lives, in the here and now, it will will continue forevermore. But for those who set themselves in a way that's not good, who didn't reject evil, to borrow David's words, they will lie fallen, thrust down, unable to rise. Christians will live forever with God in a newly recreated heavens and earth. It's going to be a world unstained by sin and death. The book of Revelation describes it, and it's going to be wondrous. It's going to be absolutely amazing. The beauty of this new creation will far outstrip the vastness of the sky and the oceans that we know now. In fact, there won't be oceans. It will never pass away, even though the mountains that we now can stand on will one day crumble, the scriptures tell us. And still, even there, in that amazing creation, God's boundless love will be the greatest thing we will see God face to face. That is our great treasure yet to come. Now is the time to live like that is a reality that is as certain as the world that we live in right now. Consider carefully the blinding power of sin. Set your heart on the boundless love of God. And go boldly to the throne to make prayers to be sustained by his grace and his righteousness. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we praise you and thank you that you have such love in you. Love for your creation and especially covenant love for us, your people. Those of us in whom you have worked to call out to us in the gospel message to turn from our sin and to trust in you. Oh Lord, give us deep, deep understanding of that love. Lord, displace the voice of transgression that still whispers in our hearts. Displace it with your strong, confident, loving voice. Give us new affections for you, Lord. And Lord, we pray that you would transform us so that we would be like you, that our love for one another would grow and grow and grow and be a testimony to the world of who your son Jesus was and is. It's in his name we pray. Amen.